Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Dirty Drinks today. How are you, Rick? I am super excited. I love special editions. Don't you? I do, too. And this special edition has to do with um, this special week that we're in right now. So we are celebrating Antibiotic Awareness Week for 2021. Let's have everybody introduce themselves. Yeah, currently we have the four pharmacists that we have. Hopefully we can have some of the clinicians that are involved in our team. It's kind of like a, you know, a day at school when you get to take a field trip. You get to do something different for the day and, and have some fun. So we have Andrew Watkins. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, so I'm Andrew Watkins. I am an antimicrobial stewardship outreach pharmacist with Nebraska Medicine. also serve as the pharmacy coordinator for Nebraska ASAP, which is kind of the state of Nebraska's statewide antimicrobial stewardship program. Thank you, sir. And Molly Miller. Hi, I'm Molly. I'm a new pharmacist here uh, in infectious diseases. I just did a second year residency here and stayed on to help with antimicrobial stewardship as well as our outpatient parenteral antimicrobial therapy program or OPAT. And I've had a lot of fun so far. Great. Welcome to have you here. Uh, It's been a pleasure with you joining us and helping us out. You helped us out today with some uh, bacteria that people can't even pronounce. So it's, uh, that's awesome. So thank you. Scott Bergman. Hi, I'm Scott. I'm the pharmacy coordinator for antimicrobial stewardship here at Nebraska Medicine. I'm also a clinical associate professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice and Science at the UNMC College of Pharmacy. And this month I took over as president for the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists. So I'm getting ready for my first board meeting this afternoon as being in charge of that after a year of being president elect and learning the ropes and all of the committees. And I guess I wanna correct you right away when you said you're gonna wait for some clinicians to come on because pharmacists are clinicians, Rick. We <laughs> work with patients and clinical medicine my bad, my bad. <laughs> I didn't it did not mean any insult there for sure. Although I think the next guest we should insult a little bit just because he's a Buckeye, um, Brian Alexander. Yes, I'm in fact from the great state of OHIO. I'm Brian Alexander, one of the infectious diseases clinical pharmacists, and I'm the coordinator for the OPAT program, as Molly mentioned. The uh, outpatient parenteral antimicrobial therapy program for patients that require uh, IV therapy after leaving the hospital. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Um, I think we should maybe start off talking about what exactly antimicrobial stewardship is for everybody out there. Yeah, I think um, to me, antimicrobial stewardship is Uh, really just ensuring that we're using the best antimicrobial for the patient. And that can mean so many different things, right? It can mean um, the right dose, the right drug, um, the right timing, um, so many different aspects of drug selection. And um, yeah, it really is very general. And then, you know, we can talk more kind of globally about um, antimicrobial stewardship as a 
uh, on a more population basis or something like that. But uh, maybe I'll leave that to some others. But that's what I would say on the kind of what comes to mind first about thinking about individual patients and how we view antimicrobial stewardship. Clinical pharmacist Scott might have some comments. Yeah, on on that regard, stewardship really is taking the best of our resources with antimicrobial stewardship. We are trying to preserve this precious commodity for future generations. And in addition to what Brian said, uh, the right drug, the right dose for the right patient, we're you know, generally thinking about narrower spectrum. Let's not disrupt the normal microbiota of the, the patient's bacteria living in harmony with them. And by doing so, we're trying to prevent resistance from developing and spreading by killing the really the fewest organisms as possible in the body, those that are most likely the ones causing infection. Uh, from a hospital standpoint too, we also have to preserve our finances. And sometimes that means using a less expensive antibiotic when there's equal efficacy between uh, multiple options. So that's something we, we do have to keep track of and answer to. And I think we've done a pretty good job here is justifying positions as represented by this panel of four pharmacists that we have with us now. Yeah, Molly, any comments to you? You um, new to the team and uh, uh, interested to see how things are going for you so far. Yeah, everything. Well, I'm super excited to be here. I've really enjoyed uh, working with all the different ID teams. And I feel like as an OPAT pharmacist, as well as stewardship, you really do get to work with everyone, uh, even in the outpatient setting, as well as inpatient. So it's been good to just to work with everyone uh, so far this, this year. And I would say that, you know, Brian and Scott and Molly really hammered stewardship. So I'll expand about saying the CDC is really now focusing on more of a, a one health approach where, you know, we typically think patient care and the patient in front of you and the healthcare system, but outside of that, even agricultural uses of antibiotics and, you know, commercial products such as antibacterial soaps and things where, you know, antibacterial molecules are being used in settings that are also going to ultimately end up in, you know, the water reservoirs and end up in an area that can still promote resistance. And so, really taking not just the clinical aspect and the hospital healthcare system, but also all the other areas that can impact and, you know, approaching those situations with a stewardship focused uh, thought process can kind of help reduce some of that unnecessary use as well. Yeah, I know as an ID doc, um, we use you guys all the time for helping us figure out the best antibiotic, the best route, the best uh, dosing uh, combinations, because we have some seriously complicated infections, as you guys are aware of, and, and how do we approach those? And you guys are certainly experts in that, and that's much appreciated uh, um, uh, from our standpoint. Uh, and I'm sure you help many, many, many other providers in the hospital that, uh, you know, IDs not touching or seeing. Uh, so that certainly is uh, appreciated. So I am curious, um, Antibiotic Awareness Week is kind of a big deal. Do you guys have like a big AAW party for all of the pharmacists? We have not had that. Andrew, do you have ideas? I don't know. I was going to say, it sounds like we should probably do something like that. Um, but yeah, no, no, nothing big like that. We try to celebrate through, you know, the uh, social media and the website, you know, the ASAP website, UNMC ID blog, 
particularly, but yeah, maybe we need to all have a get together. Uh, throw a big antibiotic bash. <laughs> Sounds like fun. We could all dress up. We have a party every day. Every time Miripenum gets DC'd, it's like <laughs> it's like uh, the bell, you know, during uh, what is it? It's a Wonderful Life, you know, an angel gets its wings. <laughs> so we all have a big head high five every time there's a Miripenum DC'd or vancomycin. So now we know how to make your day on the consult service, right? Just discontinue Miripenum, and we know somewhere somebody's celebrating that, right? <laughs> what about Andrew? You're mostly working uh, in the um, ICAP world, right? So what's your, what do you celebrate? Well, that's good. I think anytime, honestly, a facility has like a drive and motivation to implement stewardship. So I, you know, typically I'm working on more of a facility wide basis. And so it was hard with all the other things going on with COVID and staffing limitations to get these facilities to even think about the fact that they need a stewardship program. Uh, so anytime we have facilities who reach out proactively to us and are like, hey, what can we do to make this better? Uh, that kind of makes my day because it's nice to know that other people are, are thinking about it kind of top of mind. So now you guys are stewardship pharmacists, obviously. Do um, is that in your entire focus? Then you don't you don't focus on any of the other multitudes of medications that there are um, that are used in the hospital or the outpatient setting or, or anything. Not that you couldn't, but you guys are specifically just doing um, antimicrobial stewardship, correct? Essentially, yeah. I mean, at this point in my career, if you're asking me about anticoagulation or any of these other things, you're, you're definitely barking up the wrong tree. I think um, certainly as the antimicrobials relate to those via drug interactions or adverse effects or something, we have, you know, we're well-trained and have plenty of knowledge to understand those. But, um, but yes, we're focusing strictly basically on the antimicrobial therapy primarily. Do you guys have any idea how many calls you get a day or how many uh, different things you look at in a given day? Is that something that you track or have anecdotally have any sense of? Interventions we make that we formally call providers on. And occasionally we will also document those interventions when people call us. We're not always the best at pulling up that tool, but uh, it is several thousand per year. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely true that um, we get so many questions. I think the, the outgoing questions, certainly, but then the incoming questions. One thing about in, being in this role is you get questions from the primary teams occasionally, um, certainly the ID consult teams on a regular basis. Um, you know, we're not unfortunately lucky enough to have so many pharmacists that we have a rounding pharmacist with each of the ID teams. And so the ID teams that don't have a rounding pharmacist with them will contact us with questions. Um, we have pharmacists contacting us with questions from their teams on a constant basis and then outpatient. So the outpatient areas will contact us as well when we're seeing patients in clinic or you know, questions about patients that are going to be going to the OR in a couple of days and they have a you know, question about prophylaxis. So yeah, the number and varied questions that we get. Now, Scott used to get them all when he was here by himself, but now we have a little bit bigger team. We can, we can spread them out a little bit, which is nice, but, um, but it still feels uh, like, I mean, we get our fair share. That's for sure. Yeah. The, the number of interventions or at least review chart reviews that we've documented. This is done mainly by the primary pharmacist that's doing stewardship by going through lists and looking for patients that may be on a broad spectrum antibiotic that we've targeted to help uh, clinicians, the uh, physicians and advanced practice providers to de-escalate safely. So 
in 2020, we had over 5,000 of those documented as a team. It was almost 6,000 in 2019, but that is quite a bit more than when I came was halfway through 2016 and started collecting this. And the full, first full year, we had about 4,000 of these interventions. And we've been able to grow the program every year since I, I joined. And this little timeline was 2017 was when our outreach program started, but also we expanded to Bellevue Medical Center where Danny Schroeder is our pharmacist point person down there. So those started to get added in. And in 2018 was when Brian joined. And 2019 was when the PGY2 residency started. So Andrew joined. Um, then 2020, he graduated and took the spot of the, the state outreach program. And we started our remote stewardship program. And Molly was our resident last year and then was able to stay on to expand our, our OPAT program and help with stewardship. Andrew and Molly were the, the first to expand stewardship from a Monday through Friday operation on the weekends. And currently, we just have them working every third weekend or averages out to that. But they, you know, they found that really catching the staph aureus bacteremias early on was one of the benefits of being there on the weekend. And you know, the other thing that was you know, pretty useful was when mismatches occur. So this is when a a patient is on an antibiotic and the bacteria grows and it is not susceptible to that antibiotic. It's, uh, it's resistant. It's not going to work. So those are things that you don't want to wait until Monday for. And sometimes they're coming back in the afternoon after the physician teams have rounded, they may not see them until the next day. So we want to get the patients on appropriate therapy as soon as possible. So large percentage of those interventions on the weekend are for that. Uh, they're also looking at streamlining, de-escalating antibiotics, discontinuing. Uh, it's a little bit harder to get providers to change on, on the weekend. It might be some covering that doesn't know the whole story, but at least that seed is planted for Monday. And the other thing we noticed with the trainees, both the ID pharmacy residents and the infectious disease fellows, is that we can accomplish much more when they're on the stewardship service helping us they don't have as many meetings to go to and don't get interrupted as much. So I think Andrew had done an analysis that on months where there's a trainee helping with stewardship, we get 40% more interventions done. And we've had more trainees in the last several years. And the pharmacy residents, uh, first year pharmacy residents will also elect to choose that uh, stewardship rotation. And the fellows are all required to do one, and some of them are choosing to do a second one as an elective as well. This is very cool. It's really evident that you guys are making a difference in patients' lives. Yeah, it's terrific. I mean, absolutely. And your 92% acceptance rate with your recommendations on uh, interventions, it looks like, which is remarkable. So you're actually changing a lot of care and making things better for, for patients. And, you know, in the end, the overall big picture, like you guys have talked about, because we're decreasing resistance, which impacts more than just that one patient. So that's wonderful. Um, you mentioned several things in there. You mentioned things about, you know, trainees and fellowship and couple of years and everything else. So how does one become an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist? What, where, where does the itch to do this starts and what kind of specialized training do you guys have? Yeah, um, 
We obviously get introduced to a little bit of antimicrobial stewardship topics and overall infectious diseases treatments during pharmacy school. So can kind of start to get interested in it back at that point. Uh, but to get here to an actual ID pharmacist position, you have to do two years of postgraduate residency training. So we do a first year, which is a general just kind of inpatient training normally. Uh, so we rotate through all the services in the hospital. Basically um, here on Nebraska Medicine, we do like internal medicine and transplant and oncology. Like we have all these electives we can do. So you rotate through pretty much anything you want to in the hospital and you can decide kind of what you feel like you can see yourself doing. Um, so I really loved my ID rotation uh, when I did it as a PGY1. And just after that kind of decided that's the way I wanted to go. And so then you do a second year specialty pharmacy residency in infectious diseases after that. And program here is awesome. So we'll put in a little plug for that. Um, we have a super strong stewardship program here. So we have a lot of focus on that. And then rotate through all of the different ID services. So we have general ID and then ortho, community ID, transplant oncology, and you get to see all the different areas of ID that you um, might want to go into. And then from there, there are several different ways you can go. You can do like community hospital stewardship. You can do OPAT and there's a lot of like outpatient ID clinics um, types of positions. So you can go into something like that or in the hospital stewardship programs and um, academic hospitals have a lot of times rounding ID pharmacists. So there are plenty of areas in ID pharmacy to go uh, once you've done all that training. Very cool. Yeah, terrific. That's, that's so cool. So cool. Did you guys all know early on, hey, I want to be a pharmacist and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, this is what you saw yourself doing and, or did you just kind of roll into it as, as you got closer through uh, uh, undergrad, et cetera? Yeah, I know personally, you know, I, I chose to go into pharmacy probably senior year of high school, not knowing much about it. Uh, and I think a really good point for any listeners who are considering going into pharmacy, you know, I kind of went in with the thought process of you go to pharmacy school, you come out, you're a pharmacist, you go work at your local chain and, you know, you just do pharmacist things at the local chain level. Uh, and then, you know, as you go year by year in school, you realize, oh, wait, there are other possibilities. You know, you can do hospital pharmacy and, you know, more like the clinical type workflows. Uh, and then, you know, again, the further you get, you realize, oh, wait, there are specialties like Molly mentioned, even within specialties. And so you can go and be a, you know, oncology infectious disease pharmacist. And so there's just so many specialized tracks um, that, you know, I just didn't realize going into it. And so I think that's something uh it's important for people who are considering going into it to think about that there are a lot more possibilities than maybe you even think going in. Brian, any comments? <laughs> no, I mean, I agree. I think I was not, um, I can say I was not planning on being a pharmacist. I had always planned on being a physician. And um, in high school, I can remember doing some work in the hospital. And that was the first time I ever saw a clinical pharmacist. I was rounding, I, I had a uh, contact in the nephrology department in Cleveland. And so I rounded uh, with that team for a while and they had, so this was, you know, in the late nineties and they had a clinical pharmacist for the transplant team. And so that was like new to me and it, it was very interesting. And I, you know, thought it was really cool to talk to him a little bit. So I knew about it, but, but went all the way through um, undergrad 
um, took my MCAT, started making my applications, and then decided that was not um, for many reasons, uh, many of which, pretty all of which basically involve um, quality of life, which Rick can probably speak to a little bit, <laughs> uh, which now seems kind of crazy because I'm sure now I work just as much as, <laughs> as uh, anyone else. But anyway, point being is... Uh, I decided not to do that kind of at the last minute and was looking, you know, to try and figure out what else, you know, can I do that would be a, a really clinical profession um, where I could still do kind of similar clinical work in a hospital setting, um, but didn't really have the same um, the level of demands and kind of really pressure. I mean, I think part of it was that I didn't want to go to medical school and not get the specialty I wanted. And, uh, and then sort of be forced to whatever specialty, you know, kind of you match to. And I knew that there were some specialties I, I felt like I would not um, be happy doing. And so I didn't want to get that far and then end up not doing something I wanted. And so, it, yeah, I would say for me, it ended up working out perfectly. I found, you know, kind of harken back to those memories, remembered about pharmacy, looked into it a little more. And so when I went to pharmacy school, unlike a lot of people, I went in knowing I wanted to do hospital pharmacy. I knew I wanted to do a residency. Um, and I had had undergraduate work in molecular biology and um, in microbiology. And so, ID was always something that I was interested in. And so it just kind of worked out as I kind of went through the process that um, that infectious disease is what was what I was drawn to. Yeah, I went into pharmacy school just knowing community pharmacy and working for my local pharmacist as a delivery boy in high school. And uh, I was a couple of years in, I went to South Dakota State. So two years of undergrad and then you could get into the professional program. So within that, then started hearing some of the faculty members talk about residencies and postgraduate training that would better prepare pharmacists to work with physicians and you know, nurse practitioners, PAs on rounds, helping make the decisions on patient care. So that was really attractive to me. And I interned at a hospital in Mankato, Minnesota, where my sister lives. And that, that was my first experience seeing physician orders in a hospital chart. And they had the staff notes and the orders on side-by-side -side pieces of paper back in the, the day. And it was interesting to see what was going on with that patient and then match it up with why the medications were being changed. So that was really when I think that was eye-opening to me and then always liked antibiotics and infections. So went when I graduated and even during rotations in my last year of pharmacy school, had that in mind of going to do a residency and then spending the second year where is where we specialize after one year of general clinical pharmacy rounding and medication management, uh, specializing in the second year in infectious diseases. So that is where I got to, you know, the point I am at. And like Molly said, there's quite a few jobs now in antimicrobial stewardship. That was still a fairly new term when I graduated from pharmacy school in 04. That was really growing. And most of the ID pharmacists were more of the traditional rounding with the ID team, but they would have some committee responsibilities like pharmacy and therapeutics committee approves new antibiotics when they come out for hospital use and who's going to get to use them and how, if there's any criteria or formulary guidelines. Um, but it, the day-to-day -day reviewing patients for the sake of stewardship to keep the broad spectrum antibiotics to a minimum and prevent side effects to patients in, in that regard was 
really coming into its own. I have worked, um, I know some of you don't know me well, I've worked in dentistry before I was an infection preventionist, and I've seen a lot of small private practice physicians um, that will just say, you know, like, I don't really know a whole lot about that. So I'm just one provider. I don't need to worry about it. Um, What would you have to say to kind of explain what you do to them and how important that is? Yeah, I mean, this is one area of medicine where any any resistance can spread to other patients and it changes the ecology of really a community of bacteria within a patient and the patient within a community of humans. So their decisions will impact the rest of society. And it seems like you know, one at a time that probably they're thinking it's not a big deal, but we see it on a larger scale. And if that keeps happening over and over, when the benefit of an antibiotic can really outweigh any uh, risk that is presented with resistance and side effects even to that patient. So there have been some guidelines now that are paying more attention to that. And dental prophylaxis is one uh, where they're becoming a little bit stricter in terms of what would be recommended and what circumstances that, you know, truly trying to find that those patient populations that are going to benefit from the antibiotic and not a just in case mentality, you know, that just in case prescribing has really led us to a point where a lot of the antibiotics we used to consider first line for average infections are no longer effective. So we're then we're using broader antibiotics. And what happens then is patients have diarrhea, they may get drug resistant infections. And it's really a kind of a spiral that those broader spectrum antibiotics aren't necessarily better for the patients. It's just that the, the odds of treating the current infection are better but multiplied over thousands or millions of courses, it it really does add up. I was going to ask you about that. I was going to say that I was sitting here thinking that, hey, you have a viral infection, but I'm going to give you this antibiotic just in case. So in 2021, do you guys still hear that despite all the education that's out there? And and what's the best message that you guys have? You mentioned resistance and, and everything else, which, you know, for me on the small scale, again, it's like it's just one person. So how does that one prescription, that one person make a difference? I assume if you multiply that by however many thousands of prescriptions for that one case, then it can become a huge problem, right? Yeah, I would say one of the things Scott alluded to that I, I, I think we all probably use, and yes, do we hear that probably more than once a week? We all hear that just in case kind of mentality. And I think that one of the things we try to hark um, to discuss with the providers now more than ever is that adverse events is another thing that utilizing these drugs is not without adverse event. And that does impact your patient, or if not this patient, it can be much more palpable because you can say, well, if you misuse antibiotics in 10 patients, I can pretty much guarantee that one of them is going to have an inappropriate or is going to have an adverse event that they didn't have to have. Um, And then that's on top of all the other um, resistance issues and, you know, the cost to the patient of of purchasing and going out to fill their antibiotics that were not necessary. And um, I mean, I think that those, those are some of the reasons that you can, you can try to discuss with, um, with providers that are kind of the, a little bit worried. They're on that kind of 
spectrum of worried about their patient, you can say, well, if you're worried about your patient, you're, you're not helping them by using an inappropriate antimicrobial. It's better to learn what's the, the correct use and only use those circumstances. You only use those drugs when the circumstances warrant. Molly, do you have anything to add? I don't think so. I just saw something going around ID Twitter recently of a study showing that like for every day of antimicrobial therapy, you're adding like a 4% chance of an adverse event. Um, so we not only want to keep providers from using antimicrobials inappropriately altogether, but we also want to limit duration to the shortest therapy possible to help again with some of the risks of resistance and adverse events and cost. I remember a presentation a few years ago from one of the experts at CDC that works on this. And he said, it's a, a problem in ambulatory clinics where that prescribing amoxicillin or azithromycin, a ZPAC for a respiratory infection when it's most likely a viral infection, but the, everybody involved, the patient and the provider may be worried about it developing into a bacterial pneumonia. So we'll give this antibiotic you know, just to try to prevent that. And it really would per save or help one person out of about a million courses, but the side effects to that antibiotic, although they are generally pretty mild, it's about one in a thousand that has a, a serious reaction to that. So on that individual one person basis that, you know, is less than 1% risk. But when you look at it cumulatively, that harm is going to be happening a lot frequent, more frequently than the benefit. So on top of everything, you know, Brian said about the you know, cost and inconvenience of actually filling a, a prescription when it's not needed, there are some serious side effects that can lead to emergency department visits. And outside of anticoagulants, these are the most common reasons for emergency department visits for medication use is antibiotics side effects. And it makes sense when you think that they're designed to kill organisms, living cells within your body. So on, you know, thinking about them as cytotoxic chemotherapy, essentially, you know, overall, they have also have more side effects than any other class than oncology chemotherapy, which are also designed to kill cells within your body. So once we start thinking about them in that, those terms, it becomes a little bit more clear, but those numbers and those percents of risk versus benefit, you know, those aren't concrete and it changes based on the severity of illness. As somebody walking into a clinic is at a lot lower risk of harm from the infection overall than somebody at the ICU where we're using those broader spectrum antibiotics to try to prevent the patient from dying until we know what the organism is and we know what the susceptibility is. And even then, you know, there are a lot of things that can impact the outcome of the patient. So those are kind of things that we, we talk to providers about and monitor the patient. And we, we do often say, yeah, this is still a, a good chance that the patient would benefit from a medium spectrum antibiotic, and we're going to continue to monitor them. That's why we have them in the hospital. We're watching them. And we're taking a close, uh, keeping a close eye on their blood work. Um, there are other signs of infection. Why it also helps to be interprofessional to you know have multiple different eyes on a set of patients that you know we can help provide that reassurance that you know this is what we see from uh, an antibiotic standpoint and that you know what do they see from the, the medical standpoint? How's the patient doing? 
you know, what is the risk that they're going to decompensate if we're wrong? So hopefully you guys get more Miropenem wins than you get just in case antibiotics, right? So is that, is that how you balance out the week? It's like, I got my good and I got my bad and we'll see if we can, can shift it more towards the, the, the former. Yeah, it depends on why the miropenem was started in the first place, because a lot of time that's a big loss for just from the get go. <laughs> so that miropenem win is just getting you back to, to baseline. Well, this that also brings up a good point that part of our program, like stewardship systematically, is trying to make it easy for prescribers to give the right antibiotic or not any antibiotic and so giving them the tools and resources. So we spend a lot of time to develop that guidance and we post it on our stewardship website at UNMC. And, you know, that helps go through a thought process of, you know, what are we seeing the patient for? And if it's this type of infection, these, this is the antibiotic we recommend. And we don't go broad. We don't use many carbapenems here. And we have a culture of not uh, starting with that. And if somebody needs it, we're okay with it. But we don't, you know, we don't like a lot of just in case prescribing. So, and I would say for the most part that, you know, that culture of prescribers are, are pretty good here. And they've kind of grown up with that philosophy that we're here to help them. We're not policing them. So when we call you know, for the most part, we're saying, Hey, this is, you know, a second view that I think they'd be okay on a, a narrower antibiotic. So order sets and guidance are a big part of what we're doing when we're not calling on individual patients. Do you guys have any favorite resources or tools that you would recommend to any uh, providers out there that might be listening if they had questions? Yeah, I mean, there are different resources. Uh, yeah, I get this question all the time from those that are trying to learn antibiotics and feel like you know, they might be a medical resident or even a pharmacy resident. and you know, I start with my pharmacy students with the book Antibiotics Simplified by Jason Gallagher and Conan McDougall. It's a fairly cheap and easy to read book that goes through the, the spectrum of activity for each of the major classes and the side effects. And I think if you have that down, it's a pretty solid foundation that you, know, you can go to rounds and feel comfortable saying this drug is for this group of bacteria and then the other side of things is you know, knowing for each infection, what are the most likely bacteria? So there, uh, ID is not a, a simple specialty and there's you know, volumes of textbooks that go through all the intricacies. So you know, it's not something you're gonna pick up in one week, but you know, those are the basics I start with and I can let others give you know, others more advanced resources if they'd like. I think I'll actually quickly say two that are not advanced. They're more simple. Number one is to just ask for help from your firm. Now, not, not every clinician out there has, you know, a, a private practice person or somebody who's in a community pharmacy. You don't have access to your pharmacy staff or, or to an ID specialist all the time. But when you do, don't hesitate to seek out their advice. Um, and the other thing from having done a little bit of work in, in somewhat more kind of community settings is that a lot of times there's only a few disease states in every specialty that you deal with, right? So I used to say like an infectious disease, most private practice people, family medicine, internal medicine, you're really only dealing with like five infectious diseases, right? On a regular basis, you got pneumonia, skin and soft tissue infection, UTI, um, those things. So 
read the guidelines, know them well, and that's all you have to do. I mean, if you, if I, if most of the primary care providers really knew the data in UTI, they would be a lot better off, but most of them don't. And, you know, I understand you've got a hundred special, you know, hundred topic areas you have to, to understand, but, um, but if you just kind of focus on that one and use, you know, the resources that Scott and probably others will mention, read the guidelines as they get um, updated, you're going to really be in good shape um, because, yeah, those are good resources. And, and a lot of times it just comes down to kind of understanding the basics. So um, what, um, what would the public need to know about Antibiotic Awareness Week and why, why does me taking an antibiotic, whether I needed it or not, make, make a big difference in the end. And why do I go to my doc and they tell me, hey, I think it's a virus. I'm not going to give you anything, but I don't feel any better. I went there and I just wasted my time. Um, so what, uh, you know, what, what do you tell people in that situation? Yeah, it's a really, I mean, it's a difficult thing to convey on a patient level, you know, of the intricacies of why you may or may not being antibiotic. And, you know, a lot, a lot of those concepts we've mentioned on this, but I, I think the biggest thing is that helping patients to understand the harm that can come with just, you know, a, an antibiotic course that you're having an impact um, overall on the healthcare system as a whole with developing resistance, but also, you know, like Scott and Brian and Molly mentioned earlier, adverse effects and, you know, the development of some of these uh, adverse effects, even, you know, to the more extreme end, even like C. diff infections and having you know, really bad infections that could lead you to go to a hospital downstream because you're taking some of these antibiotics. And so I know it's frustrating as a patient to enter in knowing or thinking that you need or want an antibiotic and not getting that. Uh, But if anything, as a patient, I would be more encouraged by a provider that did not automatically give me an antibiotic prescription because I know they took the time to really assess me as a patient on an individual basis and say, hey, you know, you're you're sick, but it's probably not your bacterial infection. You know, this antibiotic is only going to harm you. So there are plenty of resources on the CDC website, um, on the Antibiotic Awareness Week website uh, in particular as well, that have some of those communication tools to kind of help lay those expectations and those foundations with the patients. Uh, But yeah, I agree that, I mean, it is a really tricky and kind of nuanced discussion to have. So Scott said something a little bit earlier that I want to go back to. Um, he said that the antibiotic stewardship or antimicrobial stewardship is about preserving antibiotics as a resource for future generations. I think that's a really cool concept and I've not ever thought about it in that way before. Um, Andrew or Molly, do you have any insight on that or thoughts? I mean, I would uh, agree. That's probably the main goal in stewardship practices is preserving antimicrobial therapy for future. We all know that we get very drug resistant organisms, especially in patients that have like repeated um, use of antimicrobials um, or they're like in areas of the hospital where antimicrobial use is high. And so we try to uh, minimize the risk of developing drug resistant infections, especially since, you know, really overall, we're not very quick at developing new antimicrobial therapies that are effective against drug-resistant organisms. We've had a few come out uh, recently that we've been using when we need them. But again, um, sparing those uh, antibiotics and using them only when we absolutely have to, just to try to preserve their efficacy for 
all the future patients that we may have that need treatment. Um, I would say that's, that's probably the biggest thing that comes to mind when you think about antimicrobial stewardship and the goal overall. But in general, like kind of how Brian mentioned, we are overall trying to optimize patient therapy. So that includes like recommending we start antibiotics in a patient who's not currently being treated for an infection or um, recommending broadening therapy in a, in a situation where it's like the mismatch situation where we have an organism growing that we're not currently treating um, with the current therapy. And so we may recommend broadening therapy in those specific instances, making sure that we are targeting therapy as much as we can so that patients get optimal therapy for their infections. Yeah, I think Molly touched on a couple of really important points in the fact that, you know, at least the last numbers that I've kind of seen or used as a rule of thumb, or it takes 10 years and I think upwards of $1 billion to get a new drug on the market, including a new antibiotic. And so you're looking at a decade's worth of research and, and you know, development of these drugs. On the flip side, these bacteria are can so quickly develop resistance. And, you know, other disease states may be different. You know, high blood pressure is not something that's going to evolve and all of a sudden not respond to, you know, to antihypertensives. Whereas in ID, we're directly, like Scott mentioned, given a drug to kill individual bacterial cells, you know, by the time they keep getting poked, you know, they're going to come up with ways to defend themselves. And so, whereas they can develop resistance pretty quickly, it can take up to, you know, a decade or so before we can get new antibiotics on board. And so that's why it really is important to preserve those for future generations. Yeah, great answers. I, I, I agree. It's vital. You're dealing with a living microorganism that's going to do things to defend itself. And, and uh, they've been doing it long before we were here and will be doing it long after we're gone. So, um, all right. So, you guys are looking through charts, looking at cases, getting phone calls, and some of them you just have to either be like, what the heck is going on here or shaking your head or something. So what's the, the craziest or the most interesting or something thing that you've had to look into in your roles uh, that you guys do every day? Oh, I've seen a lot of crazy things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I think some of the... Uh more interesting things have come about uh, that we're, now that we're using MALDI-TOF to identify organisms because you always get these random organisms you've never even heard of and you have to look into what they are, what type of bacteria it is, um, and all the different um, like susceptibility testing. A lot of times you can't find a lot of information on them. Um, so you're trying to you know, look at case series and things like that to figure out how to treat a patient with an organism you've never heard of. So those are usually, those are always fun, I think. <laughs> Good learning opportunities. and Dr. Google can be helpful in those cases, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'll say another thing. That, again, it's not really a specific case necessarily, but from a pharmacy perspective, when you get to certain like sites of the body that have really hard, they're hard to penetrate, hard to get antibiotics to, hard to treat infections. Like say you have patients who have, some sort of ventriculitis. It's not responding to standard therapy like you would expect. You've got a source issue that's difficult to control in a patient. And you know, our job is to find the best combination of antibiotics or the best delivery routes of antibiotics, how best to kind of get the most optimal therapy to where it needs to get in the first place. And like Molly said, you're looking through very scant literature and you're putting together, you know, a couple case studies and say this, this is probably our best shot given the, you know, the patient case you've got. You're dumping aminoglycosides right in a lateral ventricle or something, right? I mean, that's that, that's not very much 
doesn't mm. doesn't just get you warm fuzzies all over. You're like, what what the heck am I going to do with this? Yeah. Do you guys have any questions for us or anything that uh, you think that we haven't covered that uh, would be helpful to either, you know, just regular listeners or people that maybe are interested in medicine, pharmacy, stewardship, how they can make a difference? I think we've covered most of the basis for like the, the type of audience who's listening to this, like the things I thought the, the question on patient expectations is really great. I mean, like hard to answer, but really great, you know, cause that's the level that ultimately, you know, there's so much use driven by patients coming in expecting antibiotics and they come in specifically asking like, I'm sick. I need an antibiotic. And my mom now, even though knowing that, you know, I'm in infectious diseases and knowing that, you know, I, I'm abreast of, of this subject area. When I, when I get sick, she'll be like, we need to go to the doctor and get some antibiotics. <laughs> no, you know, so I mean, it's just very, that, that's, it's hard to sit by and not do something when there's somebody sick, especially as a you know provider when there's somebody in front of you who's sick. But I think it's just important to understand that when you think you're helping somebody by giving them an antibiotic that may not benefit them, you're actually doing them more harm than you are anything. I think we learned a lot of that in the pandemic, right? Because I mean, initially, these pe- people have been really sick with COVID-19 that have gone in the hospital. And lots of different treatments were thrown at patients in the in the thought of that maybe maybe it will help, um, but we've come to learn that a lot of them didn't help and maybe could have potentially caused harm with, with, when we don't have data to back it. And so I think that the the main thing that we have to keep in mind is just like you guys have said is that medicines anything that we take is not benign. It does have uh, event adverse events that. You know, when we try to weigh a risk benefit ratio whenever anything is prescribed or recommended or, or anything like that. So it's it's important. And you guys play a critical role, I think, as a gatekeeper in making sure that this is done appropriately. And I can't tell you how much we appreciate having you guys as part of the team. Yeah, it's been great getting to learn a little bit more about antimicrobial stewardship and celebrate Antibiotic Awareness Week with you guys. And you guys do have to, if you guys do have an antibiotic awareness week party, you need to like take pictures or something for social media so that we can put it up. Even if it is just a little celebration when meropenem is discontinued or, or whatever it might be. Um, I assume as pharmacists, you guys probably like drink um, micro brews or something that's, uh, you know, that, since you guys understand how to make all those things or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd- well, I'd like to get into that one day with <laughs> <We're laughs> for hobbies that do not include uh, watching my kid run around <laughs> and getting sleep. Then I would love to, to delve into some of those for sure. You have a tub at your house, right? Yeah. 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 There you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much everyone for being on today. We really appreciate your time. It's Thanks for fun. all your help. Always you got you, all of you are invaluable resources to the team to help us take care of everybody. So thank you. Thank you for having us. I've enjoyed this. Yeah. Thank you guys. Yeah. And for all of our listeners out there, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at dirty underscore drinks. And we will be um, having more conversations about antibiotic awareness week on Twitter. So join us there. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks 
on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.